Please leave a message after the tone. I have always loved Indigenous singing and drumming and just the voice that they bring in. So I just want to pray in Canada just that their voice would be heard. They have a unique voice. It is a powerful voice. And yeah, I just want to pray blessing and freedom and just release and a venue for those voices to be heard. Reconciliation. What does this mean to you? This is the Journey with Care podcast, where we navigate honest conversations about faith, culture, and loving our neighbors. I am the host, Melvina Gabosh, and I am an Indigenous lover of Jesus. Welcome back to another episode of Journey with Care. In studio today, around the table, we have Dr. James Robertson, a professor at Tyndall Seminary in Toronto, a Canadian church historian, an author of a new book, Overlooked. I am excited to have him with us today. Welcome. (laughs) Thank you very much. I'm very humbled and honored to be here. Wendy met him when she was at an event in Hamilton. And yeah. Yeah, this is Wendy. I'm I'm here joining in the studio. Um, It was so good to meet you, James. Uh, We met at a conference that was held at the McMaster's University in Hamilton back in May of 2022. And uh, you were speaking there on the history of the Canadian church. And I'm like, it's about time because I was so relieved to to hear about things on a very Canadian level on the history and the church. So uh, I'm so glad that we can keep this conversation flowing. Excellent. Thank you very much. And I, I completely agree. It's important to get that Canadian perspective in there. James, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, okay, sure. As you mentioned, I'm a professor at Tyndale. Uh, <laughs> I'm an author. I'm going to try my best not to repeat what you just said, because that doesn't make for, for good podcasting. Yeah, I'm, I'm a part-time minister. Uh, I minister in a couple uh, CBOQ uh, churches, which is a Convention Baptists of Ontario and Quebec. I'm a father of two boys, and uh, yeah, that's it. And uh, very excited to be chatting about the, the book and everything that you're doing here. It's a, it's a wonderful and very, very important series of conversations. So again, let me reiterate, very humbled and honored to be here. We are glad you're with us today. Tell us uh, what led you on this path to becoming a Canadian church historian. Well, I have to give all credit to my doctoral advisor, Dr. Gordon Heath at McMaster. He's uh, an expert in church and war, which was definitely something that we got into the background. That was my background. So I started trying to figure out how do we bring in the ideas of religion and conflict and whatnot. Of course, sadly, the world is, is full of examples. And I was in Ireland many years ago, and I was just, as one does when, on, when a historian is on vacation, we tend to go to archives. And I was just flipping through a newspaper, and there was a big headline there. It says, uh, the Irish invade Canada. And I was like, what was this? <laughs> and I learned all about the Fenian invasion of 1866, and that sort of brought my, my two worlds together, wanting to be a Canadian historian. Uh, and then I did my doctoral work on um, Christianity in the War of 1812, and uh, just found absolutely, I think, most Canadians, we get the sort of sense that Canadian history is a big snooze fest. And I was pleasantly shown that this is uh, this is not the case. A lot of interesting ideas. Well, I think there's two forms of Canadians, those that love history, the history buffs, and then those that would think of it as a big snooze fest and they would rather turn on the television and watch the people to the south and be entertained. But yeah. what I found as I was I was reading your book and we'll we'll talk more about it later. What I found about it is that I tended to grow up being on the snooze fest team 
and thinking history. <laughs> do I really want to learn it? I want to hear that I'm a visionary. I like to look to the future. But what I found, you you ignited some more interest for me to learn my history better. I sort of saw it as like, you're kind of like a psychologist of the past. Like you, you unpack the stories to really get into the brains of Canadians. And that's a very nuanced field. So I realized this is no snooze fest to dig into Canadian history. There's actually a lot of overlooked, hence your, the title of your book, overlooked ideas and stories and themes here that really help us understand my future. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for saying that, because that's exactly why the the book is titled uh, Overlooked is like the snooze fest boat. If there are two mm -hmm. different uh, size boats, the snooze fest boat would be like a Carnival Cruise Line. And uh, those who see the, the relevance well, of Canadian. The yeah. Oh, good. So you're, you're in the dinghy with the rest of us. That's good. Thank you. Well, Welcome aboard. I'm going to have to admit that I'm still on the boat. I'm on the snooze fest boat. Fair enough. <laughs> so convince her otherwise. No, but your, book, your book, you know, had me looking overboard. <laughs> nice. Nice. Had very, me looking like maybe I'm going to jump ship. I'm not sure yet. But. And you know what? Maybe that's the, the point of this podcast here today of just helping people look over the edge of the boat. And maybe we can come to some middle ground here uh, between the dinghy and the, the cruise. I don't know what it would be like a canoe. Maybe it would be very Canadian. Um, That's true. <laughs> so we're going to canoe down this lane today. I'm looking forward to this conversation. We've been talking about your book that you recently wrote, Overlooked, uh, The Forgotten Origin Stories of the Canadian Christianity. Uh, what inspired you to write this? Uh, well, I was with a group uh, called New Leaf, uh, Nash a Canadian national group, uh, looking at uh, basically exactly what you've been talking about, the uh, what's, what's going on in Canada. What, how can we address this? How can we bring more Canadian voices to, to the forefront? And uh, we did a conference a few years back and just sort of realized, like I looked at it, we were looking specifically at the nuns and the duns. So not Catholic mm. nun, not N-U-N, but N-O-N-E-S, like those who signed on to their recent uh, status update that they're part of no religion. And then the Duns, which is another group that you can monitor, those who probably grew up in the church but are now done with institutional Christianity, organized religion, that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. So just on the topic of those who have served and been the nuns and duns in the Canadian story, and uh, that was sort of the, the seed that grew into this book, was just taking the time to sort of write down and coming up with more concise sort of look at it, a deeper look. Because I'm only speaking for an hour, so you can't really get into a lot of the detail. And what I came to discover was, which is fascinating for me after all the years of studying this stuff, is like these concerns around so-called secularization are actually nothing new. Canada has been here before. It doesn't matter what time you're talking about, what period in time you're talking about, you're hearing very similar arguments. So I found that to be really interesting for me. That that intrigued me. You you mentioned that at the conference when you were speaking and, and that gripped me because so often the the narrative that we hear in the story of the Canadian churches that we need to go back to our roots and become Christian again. And, and that mm. whole pushback against secularization. And, and what I found and what I was just discovering in this, this conversation in my head was like, actually the, the current church is maybe more secular than we realize. And maybe we're, mm -hmm. we're fighting the same narrative that they were fighting way back then. And uh, was it hard to find yeah. the, the history of Canadian stories of, within the church? How hard was that to, to bring all of these stories together into to a book? I mean, for me, it's pretty easy. It's more like, what are the stories I'm not going to tell and why? <laughs> like that's, yeah. And I mean, I'm, I'm a professor, I'm a historian, and I'm also a pastor. So finding words has never been a weakness. <laughs> if anything, it's, <laughs> it's, shut, it's shutting me up. 
so it was more about, okay, what are the major points behind this? And there's some big epochs in the Canadian history. And especially since been listening to this podcast, this is another piece of the research I've been doing in the past year and a half. You know, the book's been written for a while. We're going through the editing, but you, you start to move on to other projects is this Canadian story, of course, from an indigenous perspective is a much different story. And that had to be a right. major part of the book as well. So we're sort of looking at it from this perspective and with the idea of sort of addressing those in Canada now that are concerned about numbers in the church. And unfortunately, that tends to be the majority and the inspiration behind these conversations. So what I was trying to show is that in the early days when, like when we talk about the 1950s and 60s, whenever we went to church, but also into the like the 1800s, into the 1700s and whatnot, when like Christianity was the dominant interpretive paradigm for the Western world, we have very similar situations happening. So the point, one of the major sort of conclusions I'm hoping the reader can draw is that what we're actually talking about now actually is much more influenced by marketing than the Bible. And it's more of a, well, we're, we're framing it as a spiritual crisis. We actually have to look at it, the words we're using, the, the things that are concerning us, it actually seems to be we're communicating more of a market share crisis. Wow. Uh, we don't have as much influence as we used to. And that's a completely different thing. We're, we're framing it all. We're putting it all in good Christian rhetoric. But the issues at heart are is like, how come not as many people are coming to church? Well, that not necessarily a spiritual crisis, but it's definitely, like I said, a market share crisis. Wow. Your book, who is your target audience when you decide to write this book? Who do you want to read this book? Well, it's, it's, it's a book on Canadian Christianity, so I could probably name the target audience by name. <laughs> and we'll, we'll still have lots of time to talk. It's, it's not going to reach a broad audience. But broadly speaking, uh, again, probably those who are somewhat concerned, uh, those who are interested, the other inhabitants of the dinghy that are interested in Canadian history. And we have to acknowledge the fact that Christianity, as far as a social influence, Christianity is the religious voice uh, of Canada. Because Canada's young, uh, what yeah. we call Canada now. It's young. It's, you know, really, we can sort of start talking about it, depending if you want to look on the French Catholic side, you know, we definitely got from about the 1500s to the 1700s. But then really, uh, the English speaking side is is a child of the American Revolution, just as much as America is. And, and so we have like the 1700s, and then it sort of kind of grows through that. What I found interesting in what you were talking about throughout the book, that interwoven story of the Indigenous people, and then with settlers coming in that so often we can think that the genesis of Christianity for North America happened when the boat arrived on the, the shores of, of North yeah. America, of Turtle Island. And yet you've brought story to why that isn't true, that uh, faith mm. was here, God was here uh, mm -hmm. prior, and that the origins of theologians of Christianity actually came far before uh, with the mm -hmm. indigenous people, like 500 years before. I'm not the historian here. I'm, I'm just clinging on to the dinghy here to, to learn from you. But can you tell us a little bit more about that, uh, the sort of the origins of Christianity not being so young? Right. Yeah. Well, I think the major part for something for especially for people who look like me and would rightfully become from a, a settler Christian uh, heritage, the theologies, the the practice, the doctrines. And, and I definitely I was raised in the church, left for a while, came back to faith in my 20s. Uh, but, you know, the stories were all similar. The narratives were all similar. Everything I've been raised in is a transplanted uh, version of Christianity. The only faith that is indigenous to Canada is indigenous faith and indigenous Christianity. And I th think one of the concerning elements uh, of the present day for the attention that, of course, we look at the evils of residential schools, we look at the ongoing colonial language, we look at these ongoing tensions between 
settler, uh, First Nations, Métis. One of the major points we have to sort of acknowledge the fact is that, you know, there are obviously, this, I'm not speaking to anybody who doesn't know this, but there are many Indigenous brothers and sisters who self-identify as Christian, and yet the worldviews of, of Indigenous Christians are not considered with any seriousness. I know a lot of churches that invite Indigenous people in to speak about experiences, for example, in residential schools. And I mean, that these are important and necessary conversations for us to have. But also, we're very comfortable, especially as Canada, we're very comfortable borrowing from other places, like we decided at the, at the top of this podcast, there's not as many Canadian voices on a whole variety of issues. We're very comfortable, like you right. said, look, looking south of the border, uh, which is problematic for a number of reasons. But we're also comfortable looking to England, which makes sense, you know, Ireland, Australia, Europe, et cetera, et cetera. But again, these become, in a sense, transplanted thinking. It's thinking that grew up in another place that we're bringing over here and sort of hammering out the rough edges all the while ignoring the fact that we do have faith that is from here, that is rooted in this land, and somehow still is not receiving the attention that I think for the rest of us is absolutely necessary, but definitely is, is well-deserved. And there's a dissonance there too. Melvina, you have talked about this on numerous occasions. Uh, it's it struck us, even as we bring people onto this podcast, how there's generations of faith within the indigenous culture and churches mm -hmm. that are well-established and prominent and spirit-led doing amazing things for many generations. And yet mm -hmm. it's insular to the rest of the broader church. We don't know about each other. And that's what we love doing here on the podcast. Do you want to speak to that? It's almost like we're a little island, us indigenous Christian believers. <laughs> we're a little mm -hmm. island put over there. And yet there's a big population of indigenous believers. You know, I was raised in a Christian home. My children will be the fourth generation. So my grandfather was a minister. My grandmother was a minister. She was a prophetess, an awesome singer, uh, a worshiper. You know, my mother's line, um, my aunties, my uncles all played instruments and sang and preached. And mm -hmm. then there's me and I'm the third generation and I'm a preacher. I'm a pastor. I love the Lord. And so when God moved me out of what I've known my whole life and put me into, I guess, the bigger church, the wider church, the, you know, capital C type thing, environment, mm -hmm. I noticed that not many people had that connection to Indigenous people or Indigenous believers. Mm -hmm. uh, not many churches had that connection. And yet there's just a big population of us. Like, that's all that I've known my whole life. But that group of people and this group of people don't intermingle. They don't know each other. They don't right. fellowship with one another. And, right. you know, I think that's the heart of the podcast, right? And if we look closely, there's a layer here within, I, I can just speak from the, the white Christianity that I've come from, of spiritual cloak that we have for this systemic racism almost, or prejudice of, we want to discern to make sure that spirituality is the way, the truth, like the theology is okay. We want to make sure that doctrine is so important, all that cognitive stuff, not to just like diminish the, the value of theology. I believe in good theology. I believe the church should be literate, but it's almost through our own lens. We can judge if this spirituality fits the bill Yeah. Um, rather than the other way of saying, teach us in, in a posture of learning. What do we have to learn as transplanted Christians here on Turtle Island? What do we have to learn from our Indigenous brothers and sisters who have been walking with Creator, who have been walking with God, and who have been doing amazing movements for years before we ever arrived? Mm -hmm. It requires a, a significant amount of spiritual humility 
for us as church to to be able to discern that, to be okay with that discomfort of those having those conversations of, of differences and uh oh absolutely couldn't it, like as from my perspective we could end this podcast on that note right there because <laughs> i think that became one of the major sort of elements within this because again to go back to your earlier question about like who's the book for and whatnot it is hopefully revealing some of these structures that have brought us to these certain places like whether you believe that you know businesses should be closed on sunday or um, whether the, you have to use the word inerrancy as it applies to the Bible. All of these are cultural trends, and I try to reveal specifically some of those ideas that have, have grown up throughout Canada. And I, and I think that's important to do so. But to return to the first episode of this podcast, and I, I remember listening to this on the road, and Melvina, you were sharing your story, and it was such a powerful story. And it's sadly one I've heard from my smaller collection of, of Métis and First Nations students uh, of this almost sort of cultural shame, I believe is the word, or pain. And and this is where un- uncovering the systemic things that brought us to, and whatever your perspective is, un- uncovering like how you got here, I think is just a good way that history can actually help. Uh, but it's also, I would say, it's absolutely incumbent upon cre- Canadian Christians right now to recognize the truth and what has become sadly a controversial idea is that we have institutions, we have worldviews, we have a construction of a nation that consciously, repeatedly, and was not even subtle about it, actually wrote it out, disenfranchised Indigenous people in the name of Christ. Mm. And and that is an important thing for us to recognize because while we may be using better words now, uh, while we're much more aware of it than, for example, our, our settler ancestors in this nation, if we're not addressing these structures, there's going to be no real change. And any historian writes in the hopes that education will bring change. And then mm-hmm. to wrap this up, uh, in the last, uh, the, the conclusion of the book, I I think James Baldwin, the amazing African-American scholar from uh, from middle of the 20th century, his point about history is absolutely apt. It is, it's not a study of the past. It's, it's a revealing of the fact that history is alive in us. It in large ways shapes our destiny. It definitely influences our biases, our prejudices, our worldviews, our passions. So what I like to say to my students is what we're doing in these courses is naming the voices in your head. You believe in wow. this. Well, let's look at the history of like, who said that? Why do you hold on to it? And sometimes, and this can be uncomfortable for people, sometimes they find theologies, practices, whatnot, that's been harming them for years. And they have now the permission and the ability to jettison that and actually pick something up that'll serve them better. And that's your point. This is not about bad theology. This is not about backsliding, deconstructing, right. you know, all the words that the church has used to keep people in line in, in history. This is about having a genuine experience of God. And if we know one thing about God is that he is really comfortable knocking down our human-made walls. (laughs) And that's fun for me because I do occupy a position of of influence, authority, power, et cetera, et cetera. It's absolutely essential as if we hope to go forward with any kind of actual reconciliation is to recognize, just like you said, that there is indigenous Christianity here that is powerful, that has been overlooked, and in many ways can actually show us arguably the only path forward if we want to have a a future-focused lens. We also talk about trauma a lot in Care Impact. And what you just said about it's not just in the past, it's actually what you're living out in the present. You're experiencing trauma today. And so I think across our land, if we want healing in our land, we have to go historical. Yeah. Right? If that isn't Absolutely. an invitation to, to get into the dinghy, I don't know what is, because if <laughs> we want to heal, if we're serious about, instead of just kind of giving the, yeah, we want truth and reconciliation and we wear the orange shirt, 
we can really quickly go into virtue signaling as even as a church that's trying yeah. hard. But if we don't dig into those stories, we are actually not really willing to do the, the hard healing. And the unfortunate, the, the unfair thing for me, Melvina, is I get a choice to, you don't get to yeah. choose. And I think that is a profound thing that something that we as the white believers need to sit with. We get to choose reconciliation, but you, you have to work out the past. And I like to frame it too, if we want to go biblical, we get, we get the ability to play the role of Cornelius. Uh-huh, um, yes. And what, what a gift. And Cornelius becomes absolutely a catalyst in the shift in the book of Acts that sees the Gentiles brought back into the Christian faith. But never forget, he occupies a place of power. He's literally a crucifier. And it's incumbent upon Protestant and Catholic. And again, that your episode with, uh, is it Jim Thunder? Yeah. Uh, on the, oh my goodness. <laughs> but so for both Catholic and Protestant, there is this invitation of like, there is a biblical path here. There is a Christian path here. But one of the trajectories I see that concerns me about the conversations around reconciliation today, and again, I cannot say this strongly enough, historians never predict the future. That is not our game. And humans are complex and life is very weird. And so it's a, it's mm. a fool's errand. But one of the trajectories I see is in the early days, so we're talking like the Karachi days, like 1500s, 1600s, where the various indigenous communities outpopulated the French, the European. There was, there was fear, but there's also a necessary mutual reliance on each other because the Europeans were going to starve to death, get disease, et cetera, et cetera. Some of the history of this has been and sort of brushed over because we know how the story is going to unfold. And then European, you know, superiority and, and weapons, of course, germs and et cetera, et cetera, happens. Then as we get into about the 1800s, as again, as, as Canada, as we call it, is industrializing, getting stronger, more stable, has more money, there's more people. There's this weird shift in about the early 1800s where indigenous people are almost viewed, and I say this, and, and this will come off offensive and it's, it's intended to be so, but not these are not mm. my words, but it's almost like looking at the indigenous people almost as pets. Of course, in the background of that is all very much at that point, the idea, like there's that Eurocentric, there's the whole idea of race, like different races have different strengths and whatnot, like what we would rightfully call racism now, but this is science, quote unquote scientific at the time. And so the different races have different ranks. And of course, at the top of that is is obviously the Anglo-Saxons and white, et cetera. So there's almost a sense because the indigenous people are less and less of a threat, they're pets. And they're called like the children of nature. And they're like, oh, aren't they? They're whimsical and wonderful. And I mean, these are ideas that are still alive today. And that is what actually gives permission. And not only just permission, but almost a Christian obligation to institute the residential schools. Because wow. we're going we're gonna to educate and civilize these people. Where this concerns me, and of course, and then we see that for over 100 years of just absolute, and I don't throw this word around lightly, evil. Yeah. Absolute evil. Abuse. Trauma. Murder. Sexual assault ongoing, ongoing. And, and the residential schools become the first in a whole bunch of degradations. In World War I and World War II, any indigenous person on Turtle Island that wanted to enlist had to give up their what they called aboriginal citizenship at the time. Huh. So then they come back from fighting in a war, which is already traumatic enough, and have nowhere to go because they don't mm. belong in settler Canada and they're no longer allowed on their reserves. So you have this trauma that goes on and on. And what concerns me about today is, well, again, while the rhetoric is better, while the issues are definitely coming to the forefront, there is this 
I mean, Thomas King's Inconvenient Indian nails oh. this right on that. Like, it's what so funny. And we'll put the book in the show notes so people can follow up with that. Yeah, yeah. Like, he is he is Mark Twain in his wit yep. and his humor and his insight, and it's brilliant. But this idea of, of co-opting, again, various Indigenous cultures to, like you said perfectly, to virtual signal, to see, look how progressive I am, et cetera, et cetera. But what I feel like is the trajectory, we're back to the pet. And that concerns me because it's not like we're it's not like we're going on a hill and coming back down now and we're going to finally get back to a more equitable relationship. I think the damage to reconciliation now is one, it'll become trendy and like all trends, it'll go away and mm. this cannot go away. Right. And two, the words are better, but as Melvina beautifully pointed out, there's no sense of community. There's no actual respect for Indigenous perspectives in a way that will actually facilitate change. And of course, the word for it, which I think is a great word for it, both biblically and realistically, the word reconciliation. That's what concerns me about the trajectory of settler and Indigenous relations in the history of Canada. actually want to ask you on a more interpersonal level what does reconciliation mean to you okay so brief preamble i warned you that i was wordy i'm so sorry <laughs> uh brief preamble is how i was trained is you divorce your feelings from the research and i think there's there's merit in that because this the chapter on reconciliation in my book was the hardest to write and i went back it over was and hard over. to read and too i was it's it's brutal it was it was, I was I actually sick to my stomach yeah Many, many times. I, sn I snapped on somebody who made an, a, a tone-deaf comment, and it was at a child's birthday party, and I snapped at them from across a room, and then I was like, whoa, this, I'm carrying this very much on the surface, because there's a lot of emotion in this. So, okay, we've been talking on the macro level. Let's bring it down to the micro level. So Malvina and I have this uh, have a relationship, which is, you know, in the words of the great movie, I hope this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. But let's say we've had a, we've had a friendship for years. And if I have been perpetually and constantly doing something that harms you, maybe not intentionally, maybe not physical, but I'm using insensitive language. We can put it right down to, to a baseline. Like I'm just saying something about you or to you um, that you don't appreciate. You know, you're like, okay, at first, well, you know, this is James. I'm going to let this go. But eventually, because we have a relationship, you bring it to my attention. You're like, listen, this is how it's going. Well, now I have a choice. You know, I can be like, well, what do you mean like that? And we can have all those fake sort of, I'm sorry that you feel that way, those terrible hmm. apology apologies that are just reiterated. For me, if I'm going to follow that Nazarene carpenter, that super cool god of mine, human, that lived 2,000 years ago, I don't have an option other than to be like, I hear you, you're right. It is now my choice to value our friendship or my desires. And what Christ has taught me is that our friendship matters more hmm. in the economy of God. And therefore, my rights, my desires, which we've heard so much of in, in the past few years and people reacting to that. <laughs> um, and what, what saddens me is, of course, a lot of Christian voices are hopping on that as well. But if we are followers of Christ, I mean, it's right in Philippians too. Like he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself to the point of death, death on a cross. At the very least... I can look at my sister in Christ and say, you know what? I'm sorry. You're right. I will do better going forward. Please forgive me. Yes. And then that gives you the chance to say, I do forgive you. And lo and behold, reconciliation and a new path forward. That's on the micro scale. And in some ways, it's more personal. So thank you for bringing the person, the interpersonal into it. 
And in that way, it's easier. So we can all model that. It, obviously, when we get to the macro national scale, there's a lot more complexities in it. But the theme and the story is the same. And then to close, I would argue this. I think probably the complexity of the macro scale is why Jesus and Paul and Peter and all those New Testament writers constantly, constantly, constantly warned us against chasing after worldly principalities and powers. Mm. It gets too big and cripples the faith, a genuine faith. So really reconciliation is, and I, I say this in the book, this is the most basic level of human interaction as, as Christ wants to demonstrate it to us. So why we're fighting against it just shows me how far from the gospel we've actually wandered. And for a passive aggressive Canadian, uh, it would be easier in the pursuit <laughs> of, and I, and I say this broadly because I think we can broadly understand that term because we, we have sorry, those tendencies. Sorry, sorry, sorry not sorry. sorry. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. When we're talking about reconciliation, I think we can go back to what that danger you were talking about before in, in that sort of pet type phase, coming back mm -hmm. to that, we can almost avoid any conflicting conversations or anything that would be hard to have those difficult conversations, we can quickly bow out, sorry mm. ourselves and excuse ourselves out of that conversation rather than apologize and correct and move on. And so mm -hmm. I think that is a challenge that we don't tiptoe around our brothers and sisters. We have deep conversations, go deep in a respectful and honoring way mm -hmm. that Melvina, one thing I love about discussing things with Melvina, that she can call me out on things and, and rightly so. But I need to sit with that. I need to receive that and not just like tiptoe around her because she's indigenous, but that how do we do this? How do we do reconciliation? How do we lead together in an honoring way? We've spent a lot of time on that because we don't want to just have the short, cute way of almost tokenizing this relationship. Mm. She's so much more valuable than that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a, a call to the church that we need to go deep and have those deep conversations at a deep mm -hmm. relational level that we're really brothers and sisters. We are the body of Christ. Absolutely. Right? Not prosthetics. <laughs> yeah, me and, me and Wendy, since our relationship began and since partnership began and, you know, we're in fellowship together and we're working, walking out this journey together with this podcast, We've come to things that not just as, you know, a, a white woman and an indigenous woman, but we, we've both had to, you know, sit with what is going on. What is what 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 is the root here? For me as an indigenous person, I don't feel that I just have the right to feel away or to be offensive or it's my right or you should do this for me and do that for me because I'm tokenizing myself if I think like that. Right. Mm. So I have to do mm. the work. I have to do the work and say, OK, so why is it that I'm feeling this? Why did this trigger me? Why is this not sitting well with me? And then I have to go to God in prayer about it. And he has to reveal that to me so I can be able mm. to approach Wendy in a way that I don't feel that I'm deserving of something. And that's where I feel like our relationship has, has walked. We walked through yeah. those things. And in reconciliation and anything in reconciliation, I think when you have two people in a relationship together willing to walk out her route and my route, and figure it out together. I don't know. That's that's the future of reconciliation. Yeah, that's right. We don't tiptoe. We go right deep into conversation. And I think that's what creates authenticity in the relationship rather than sort of a folklorama yeah. of mm -hmm. Christianities. And uh, we have to be careful not to go there because that would be more comfortable. It would be celebrated. But 
when we get into deep conversations, some might say, oh, like, Wendy, you shouldn't talk. But, but we're going deep. We're going at an authentic level and we're pursuing it not for show. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. And mm-hmm. so sometimes and we can have those difficult conversations, knowing that we honor each other in the end. And, and we're, I, I certainly haven't arrived. I've been yeah. learning in this journey, but I think the only way to to learn is to jump into the student seat uh, yeah. and to throw ourselves into uncomfortable situations where we don't have the answers and other people do. And I think we don't have to be afraid of making faux pas. We just have to go in yeah. humility. And I think that in in anything in reconciliation, it's it's partnership, it's it's equality. It's we're both equal in this relationship. Mm-hmm. We're both equal in this. And I think that's my hope that Indigenous people would come to a relationship feeling that with, you know, a non-Indigenous person is that they are equal, but they also have to treat the other person as an equal partnership in that relationship as well. Oh, powerful. I had a a professor by the name of Dr. Joyce Bellows, and she introduced this to me years ago when I was in graduate school, and I've never forgotten this. And she's like, anytime two people in an interaction, uh, if you just look at a math formula, it's one plus one equals two. She's like, now, it will always equal two. What we've learned in our society is that some people have more value. So, you know, this person is, because of whatever, is a 1.25. She's like, now, if the answer is always going to be two, that forces the other person to become a 0.75. Wow. Well, the queen just recently passed away. So the queen goes into any situation. She's a 1.8. And so everybody around her is a 0.2. Varying scales. You know, obviously, I'm just picking numbers out out of the air here. But she's like, here's what the power of what Jesus did. He treated everybody as a one. Now, not more, not less. He was never less than a one, and he never treated anybody else less than a one. So for those people like the tax collectors, women, uh, the marginalized, they're used to being 0.5, 0.25. So Mm -hmm. he elevated them to one. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, the politicians (laughs) were used to being 1.5, and he brought them down to a one. So from their perspective, he was a troublemaker. Other people's perspectives, he was a redeemer. And she's like, it was just them. He treated everybody like a one. And I think you're absolutely right. And again, we have, as as followers of God, we have this biblical story. We have these examples. Reconciliation is absolutely a part of our lexicon. It's part of our lived experience. And the problem is, is when we disconnect it and just turn it into like a theology on the paper, as opposed to living out literally the kingdom of God, which exactly is what you've been saying is what the church is called to be. Jews and Gentiles had all sorts of issues that are very similar to indigenous and settler Christians and actually been fighting for a lot longer. And yet the early Christian communities found a way for everybody to be united at God's table together. So we can too. Part of the way to actually practically do that is know what got us here. And that's when I bring us back to the dinghy. (laughs) You know, you guys were both mentioning about um, the chapter in the book of reconciliation. I believe it's chapter seven. Um, you had mentioned that it was very difficult for you to write this chapter. I just mm-hmm. w- want you to share a little bit about your experience and why it was difficult and why why was it hard for you? Oh, so many good things. So the great thing about being a historian is you always begin with like, okay, what are my biases? What are my prejudices? What are the stories I'm including? What are the stories I'm excluding? Why? Uh, so it's a very self-evaluative process. So I started off, oh... You too. I was so woke. I was so on the right side of history when I started this thing off. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I was so like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to nuance this whole thing. I'm going to find a really good way. And then thankfully, I have some wonderful friends and scholars 
that know this better than I could. Because again, the books, this book's a survey. So there's some areas that I really know well, and there's some areas that I needed help to sort of unpack. And I had a whole list of people that I thank at the beginning for doing that. And one of the greatest comments was from a professor named Evan Habkirk. He's like, yeah, I get what you're trying to do. Here's the 20 different places you went wrong. <laughs> I was like, thank you. <laughs> and, and so he's like, you're trying to nuance something. And what's been happening through the great majority of Christian history in Canada is we've all been nuancing it. And it needs to be stated. The nuance is not the problem here. The, the nuance, sorry, the nuance is the problem here. He's like, you, in order to balance this thing out, you're overlooking a whole bunch of stuff that needs to be told. So I basically scrapped that whole wonderful, very virtue signaling <laughs> chapter of mine and dug into it. And that's why it took over a year to write just that chapter and wow. found as many resources as I could, as many historical items as I could. He set me on a journey that slapped me in the face with how absolutely unambiguous this was that from like the Bagot report through like all these different reports in the 1830s, to the 1850s, it, they just basically stated again and again, in order to bring quote, these people up, we need to sever the relationship between the child and the parent, take the kids, don't let the parents know where they are, make sure that they learn English, ignore their pagan religions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And again, what concerns me about today is a lot of people doing that were doing it for what they believed were the right reasons. They really right. thought they were saving indigenous people. And that's it, that doesn't find a lot of breath in today's narrative about it. But I think that's the big secret is there's still a lot of people now that think they're doing the right thing that are just reiterating in new form these old harmful ideas. We have genuine villains. We have people who signed up for these obscure remote places they were championed as missionary zeal as being like these champions for christ like look at them going to to save these poor children in these remote places that's a pedophile mm. uh that's a person with a lack of accountability that's a monster in human form and so we have genuine villains and and so that that story needs to be told as well but for those like myself who starts this chapter off in a very self-righteous the more i wrote the more i didn't want to write the more I've, I've read about this stuff, the more I, I want to shut up and listen, which makes it very tricky when you're both a professor mm. and on a podcast. <laughs> I don't. Maybe it would be better if I just was like, no, you just tell me. But obviously, I got to say some stuff. But I felt you did listen. You were you were the author, but I felt you were listening into these conversations, these historical facts. What I appreciated about that chapter, very difficult to to read as well, because you just brought facts together. And some different nuanced ideas to the surface that we just don't have articulation for. But mm -hmm. at the end, you didn't wrap it in a pretty bow. You didn't redeem the story no. because it is yet to be worked through. Yeah. Uh, you presented it in, I think, in a very honest way that you shared your discomfort with me in a, in a rightful way. I think okay. it, it wasn't meant to, to ease my discomfort. Mm. Well, you know what? Actually... That, that's a very high compliment. And for that, I really do thank you. Mm. Uh, I hear that and receive that. And I mean, it goes back to episode one of this podcast, Melvina, when you sort of, you speak about this trauma, this, this inherited stuff. And again, I've heard this from my students. Sadly, I, I hear you. That makes sense. That is definitely the, the sense I got from the, the horrible research uh, that had to do that this stuff actually happened. It's as bad as, and frankly, and this is the part I hate saying, and this is where people think historians are doomsayers. Uh, I mean, we know about the unmarked graves and mm -hmm. back when we found the first ones, I was, I was speaking to someone I know who is who in his adult life, 
I discovered he was actually indigenous. He was adopted mm. and, and whatnot. So he was walking through being raised as a settler and now embracing his indigenous identity. And so we we're, of course, talking about this. And I said, I know how many residential schools are operating. I know where they're operating. This number is going to get massive. And that, I don't say that lightly. Mm -hmm. Like the number of unmarked graves is going to be massive. It's going to be well into the thousands, tens of thousands. Mm. And like, there's a moment of, I, hear, I hope you hear the voice choking me. It's like, I, I don't actually know what to do with that. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the part that we need to wrestle with now is like, that was done in the name of Christ. And that, for those of us who come from traditions that were involved in that, that's what we need to own. And I guess the last sort of part is, you know, teaching at Tyndale, I have a lot of students who did not grow up here that came from all around the world. And so they're wrestling with, well, as a Christian, I'm like, they don't even know this story. I'm like, yeah, this actually isn't a part of your church history, but it's a part of mine and mm. it's a part of a Catholic. So it needs to be addressed. And I think we have a really um, wonderful opportunity right now to literally embody what is a core theological doctrine in ways that people in and outside of the church will hopefully see and recognize like i don't those christians are nuts but i'll, I'll give it to them on that that was that was a good move so if we're still worried about evangelism and that sort of stuff then why isn't this at the absolute forefront of what we're doing let's talk about white man's burden what do ah. you mean by that well that's from the famous rudyard kipling poem but I mean, I guess that in three words, that is colonialism, privilege, uh, that sort of stuff. This idea during the colonial era, we need to take this into consideration when Canada was born. It comes into age in the age of empires and rebellions. Uh, I said this before, and I mean this. Uh, English-speaking Canada is as much a child of the American Revolution as the United States. Mm -hmm. It was it was populated by people who stayed loyal to the British crown, and then after the revolution couldn't stay there anymore, so they marched north. And that's the birth of Upper Canada, which would eventually become Ontario. But prior to that, and what the Americans accomplished in, in the 1770s there, it wasn't a question of empire, yes or no. It was which one. Uh, that's just the sort of de facto understanding of the world. Rudyard Kipling is writing in the later 19th century, he's still sort of advancing this idea that the British Empire was called and appointed by God to civilize and Christianize the world. When that was accomplished, literally looking at the Great Commission, you know, when you taught every tribe and tongue, you know, and baptized them, then the great and powerful and awesome day of the Lord would appear. So there's an eschatological element to the British Empire as well. So what he's trying to do is inspire America to take up that mantle. Um, and he's like, and don't worry, the people in the lands that you're about to conquer, and at this, for this case specifically it was the Philippines, he's like, they'll hate you for it. But anybody that you're trying to better is going to hate you for it, but they'll thank you in the end. And that's the white man's burden. It's mm -hmm. up to us white people to make sure that the rest of the world comes up to our standard. Wow. And that, that becomes an important part for us to, as we, again, deconstruct these institutions. Make no mistake, they are built on, these are the de facto understandings. Not just of white people, but of course of many of the various uh, cultures and races and ethnicities, is, is a better word for it, uh, that they conquered. Like this was indoctrinated into them. It's like this is, this is the standard you want to get to. And the more you can assimilate into that, the better your life is going to be. And Jesus mm -hmm. was all wrapped up into it, which is why we can laugh at it. But have we ever stopped to really look at it? It's like, why are there so many white Jesuses? <laughs> white man's burden is yeah. sort of like a, an insight into why that is. And that's where you get the saying, and there's a book written about it, When Helping Hurts, right? When we we think we are doing things for altruistic reasons and maybe just uninformed. Uh, mm -hmm. We don't know what we don't know. And we we want to do things 
with good intentions, but that doesn't mean that it's always without collateral damage um, along the way. And I think we can learn from that history. I think it's still alive and well, and we have to check our motives and be, be honest with ourselves on why are we doing this? And Mm. we we haven't talked too much about care impact and uh, our organization, but that's a part of, it's a good segue into why we do what we do at care impact. We're focused on the Canadian church and that's why we got excited when there's a historian talking about the Canadian church history. And I'm like, yes, it's not (laughs) cut and paste from the U S I love my U S brothers and sisters, but there's something nuanced that we need to articulate here that I think your book helped me understand better what nuances we're working with, but we exist to connect and equip the church to journey well with children and families in hard places. And And we know that those that are most affected, those that are most disempowered or marginalized are disproportionately the Indigenous people due to the residential schools, to years and years, centuries of decades and decades of oppression. And so we can understand that, but we're we're trying to find a way forward. It's one thing that the Canadian church has had their hands slapped, uh, Mm -hmm. and rightly so. And, and we, we can read about it in, even in your, your work here. But what do we do with that? How do we move forward in a, in a constructive way that we don't just go sing kumbaya in our little quarters and, and uh, be on with our own life and, and not discomforted by the realities of our past and the present? But how mm-hmm. do we actually help the church journey in a good way to love our neighbor with respect so that it's not a white man's burden? but that it's almost in a student humble seat of how do we walk together in a good way. And so, so that's the passion that we have as Care Impact, the academy doing training for the church. And the church isn't, quite frankly, used to being in the student seat. They're usually taking the right. pulpit. And that's a very big paradigm shift to be in a posture of learning. Yes, we want you to help that youth aging out of care, and we're going to help connect you into the community because we build relationships with agencies and organizations and indigenous groups. But yes, we want you to be out there, but let's posture ourselves in a learning position that that youth aging out is actually your professor, that that mom that is struggling to keep her children or to be reunified is actually somebody we need to learn from because her story is somehow woven into our church history as well. Mm -hmm. And if we don't do that work, We are those white saviors. We are those people, whatever your color is, we are those people trying to be Jesus to the world instead of seeing Jesus in the people right around us, especially those that have lived here long before us. So I think this history, whether you're on the dinghy or you're still on the cruise boat, we we still have to go and learn this history if we want to actually journey in a good way forward. Because chances are, if we're going to just close our ears and go out there and, and make sandwiches and feed the homeless, we could be likely hurting and not helping in an, a long-term way. There, that's my soapbox. What do you have to say, Melvina? <laughs> um, I'm going to go back to your book. I'm going to go back to the chapter that, that you wrote here. And for me, it wasn't hard for me to read it. I feel like I was reading what I felt what I've experienced. Mm. That's Mm. what I, it was like on paper and I was reading it from, you know, my words were on paper, if if, if that makes sense. And so um, there was a few things in your book that like, I feel like I've known because like I shared, I come from generations of believers, generations of 
you know, people that love the Lord, that, you know, I know Jesus because of the encounter I experienced with him. I don't know him because of, you know, going to school and being told this and being told that. And I know him because of what he's done in my life. And so a portion in your chapter there, you talk about, I believe you said native preachers played a prominent role in Christianity and teaching mm-hmm. the brothers and sisters. Like in your research, I want you to kind of just touch a little bit about that, about what you what you found in that research. Yeah, I mean, and th- this becomes a touchy subject with um, with the narrative that is dominant today. But yeah, there's there's a lot of historical evidence. We have a variety, and I mean, just just so this conversation right now, I love that you talk about being a follower of Jesus, fourth generation. I don't do that. I was like, yeah, I'm a Christian. And of course, I have multiple <laughs> generations, and I have no excuse because both of my grandmothers, my maternal and paternal grandmother, were historians of the family. I've seen a family tree that goes back to the 1400s that ends with my sister and I, and uh, and that's powerful. So that's just sort of one of those those disconnects that I think I can learn a lot from you, Melvina specifically. So it, it, it's very nuanced, and I probably can't get into the full uh, breadth of it. But again, this the sort of notion that Europeans came over, they conquered. They destroyed, they systematized, racialized, ghettoized uh, indigenous peoples throughout Canada. It doesn't take a trajectory into consideration, and it doesn't take a lot of things into consideration, which I, I think are really important nowadays, When especially specifically when I think about you, Melvina, or someone else I greatly admired, Dr. Terry LeBlanc, mm. and the various indigenous Christians that I know, is I think that sort of dominant narrative of today does not take into consideration, or literally overlooks the indigenous Christians that have existed for numerous generations. And in a well-meaning fashion, kind of reiterates one of the sort of tropes that Thomas King brings up beautifully in his book of sort of putting all indigenous experiences into one category. Yes. And that's and that's how the Canadian government did it. And that's how the Canadian churches did it. We did it under the one word, Indian. And once you have everybody, this whole diversity of people under one category, I find it still present within myself, even as I'm speaking to you right now, I have to do an extra mental step to, not, to recognize that Indigenous doesn't, doesn't incorporate every single person in, on Turtle Island or in the place that we now call Canada. There's a profound variety, but I don't think about that about myself. I don't think I speak for all white people. And so I'm like, oh, wow, that is still very much alive in me. So for the the indigenous people that uh, interacted with the missionaries throughout the late 1700s, early 1800s, as an example, there's a whole variety of of responses. Some were absolutely, they were amazed and, and had no problem calling Jesus their own. Some added Jesus into uh, how they were understanding the world. Some did it for purely political and commercial gain. And what I found that makes me laugh so much and wish I had more time to put this in the book was this idea that Indigenous people were just sort of taken over, again reiterates this this trope that somehow an Indigenous person is not autonomous, is Mm. not able to make these decisions for themselves, that look at them, they're just victims, the poor. And of course, we do know there were many victims. But to again, put all Indigenous people into the victim basket does the same thing again. And this is one of those sort of subtle tropes that's still alive. Because we have these wonderful and hilarious examples, especially when the British and the French were here, of various indigenous communities playing them against each other, recognizing, Mm. oh, these two hate each other. So (laughs) if we can do this, we can get this from the French. And if we do this, we'll get this from the British. And for a huge chunk of it, they did really well. They loved the Europeans because they were so caught up in their own feuds 
that the many indigenous communities just used it to their own advantage. Some had genuine faith. Some were tricked. And many, many were coerced and forced, especially. But that is definitely that is definitely the later 19th century. It's all there. But basically, the railroad, the economy being stabilized, the industrialization of Canada makes most leaders no longer willing to be patient with indigenous people. And I mean, specifically, we can look at that with Louis Riel uh, and the Métis in, in the Prairie provinces and stuff. Mm-hmm. He was very successful in the 1870s, but by 1884, 1885, he isn't able to do it as much because there's a lot more military strength behind Canada. So rather than negotiating with him, they just set him up and, and executed him. Mm-hmm. So there were indigenous people within these communities that saw the benefit of it, educated and and this I want to say very carefully, and I write this very intentionally in my book, so I want to reiterate it, but I want to say it very, very carefully. There are Indigenous people who saw the benefit of white education. They were not. They were not talking about residential schools. They were not talking about boarding schools. The closest we've got as a comparison is to when parents nowadays, English-speaking parents, put their kids in French immersion. They saw the benefit of being educated in this other culture. But in no way, shape or form was that a denigration of their own culture. And in your chapter, you you really articulate that well, because I'm like, wow, he's going there. But I, yeah. I think it's really well. It, it pays to pay attention. And, and this is another uh, shout out to the audience to, to read the book, because it helps you understand that nuance. Right. I, I just, I'm hoping like I do, this is a wordy answer. So I'm hoping that's coming across because I don't want to oversell the fact is like, oh, no, no, uh, the indigenous were the architects of their own destruction. Not at all. But I do want to capture the fact that just like any other quote unquote people group, there is a multiplicity of, of responses. And indigenous Christianity is not a monolithic structure. There's indigenous Catholics, there's indigenous Pentecostals, there's indigenous Baptists, there's indigenous United, there's et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And all of them have different ways of doing things. And that's an important understanding because whatever branch of the faith they hold to, it's still a version of the faith that is native to this soil, that is is rooted in this ground. And the problem became when indigenous Christians were, quote unquote, forced to look like the rest of us, forced to look like us, in the words of Terry LeBlanc. And so I'm not going to buy wingtip shoes and a three-piece suit. He's like, I'm going to be fully indigenous me. And oh, lo and behold, Christ is here. And he's showing me a version of himself that I can actually communicate, not only to my brothers and sisters, but I think will actually help a lot of settler Christians as well. I think it's easy for non-Indigenous and Indigenous alike to make it too simple, um, to not look at the nuances of and the complexity of faith. And you can't judge people's motives and their relationship with Christ necessarily. And and sometimes it's easier just to reject Christianity as not being Indigenous enough. And, and I wonder, and, and this is more of a question to Melvina, what it's been like as an Indigenous believer, being fully Indigenous and a follower of Christ, raised in generations of faith with being Indigenous. Did you feel like a one with Indigenous people? One plus one equals two, that analogy. I love that. Or is there is there something that has almost played against you because of some of the negative Christianity, the talk of like white man's religion and all of that? coming here after? Well, I think I'm, uh, I'm very honest with that, with that part of my life. Like, so in, in the indigenous communities, there's either you're traditional or, or you're a believer. And so I was raised in a Christian home. So I was taught that that stuff was wrong. This is wrong. That identity is wrong. That culture is wrong. You know, like all of that is wrong. 
And so when God reconciled me back to him, he was the one that started to teach me that he doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't make mistakes. He created me in the image of who he is. He created me the way that I am. He created me with my brown skin. He created me a beautiful indigenous woman. He created me to be bold and to, you know, he created me this way. If he did this and he made me indigenous and he made me, you know, the color of the skin that I am, and he made me this culture, then how is that wrong? Because Mm. he doesn't make mistakes. So when I was reconciled back to Christ, he had to show me that I was the one. I hold the one number. You know, I I, I don't hold a, Mm. a 0.5 or I am one. And so when I was brought to that, to that realization that I'm equal in this, that I I have a right to be here, that I have a right to love Jesus, I have a right to be indigenous. When I was brought to that revelation, that's when I was able to be reconciled back to my brothers and my sisters. So meaning that is when I was able to see them as an equal, as an mm. equal to me as well, if that makes sense. Wow. Yes, it does. Yeah, so I'm just on that journey. I'm on that journey figuring it out, um, figuring out who I am, who God has created me to be, and not to be ashamed, not to be ashamed of of the color of my skin or the and culture. And you're bringing other people in your influence, even on the podcast, but also in your, your ministry effort in the North End and stuff. You are bringing other people into that awareness and that freedom uh, to find their own identity. My heart is just to... I don't know. I just want more of my Indigenous brothers and sisters to know Jesus for who He is. You know, the love and what He did on the cross for us, like that selfless act that He did for us. Um, that's what I want them to experience. That's what I want them to encounter. And not the one that came in the name of residential schools and of, of the church, but the one that has loved me for who I am and taught me to love myself. As an Indigenous person, reading your book, but also reading this chapter, chapter seven on reconciliation, talks about residential schools, talks about all different kinds of topics. I truly feel that that one chapter can be a book. No, yeah. I really hope that one day you write that chapter into a book because I would read it. <laughs> I oh, would read it. So. Bless, Maybe you. you're going to have to do one of those chapters in that book. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, if, if you want the big reveal on the book, I'm already working on it. Are oh, you? Awesome. awesome. Yep. That is oh, yeah. fantastic. That's great. Like, I, I truly feel that, you know, that God brought you on a journey yeah. in this and he's given you the wisdom and the knowledge and the history to, to write it. I'm, um, and I, I'm not saying this with any sort of false humidity. Humidity. <laughs> it's a little warm here today. Humility. That, that, that was a perfect. That was a perfect club. There's there's nothing very wise or knowledgeable about me. Uh, so I feel very humbled. Very. I'm very thankful um, that I know this is going to be a very weird, strange, bumpy, painful, exciting road. Mm-hmm. This is genuinely. Uh, we're preparing to tour the book, and I'm getting ready to do the show. And so the opening of the show is like, let me tell you why this book sucks. <laughs> Um, why this, my, why my mm. book is terrible because I've got the historian's vantage point and the historian's vantage point is always to see how messy things are because 90% of my work is just in archives and sort of putting things into a somewhat semblance of an order sure. without hopefully sacrificing too much truth. So even reading history doesn't give this profound gift that again, I am so thankful to have received. And I feel like there's no sort of better way forward in all honesty. And I mean, this not just as a, as, as a Christian, but as a historian, there's no reason why Canadian Christianity should go forward unless it is in this vein. 
And the wonderful gift about being in Canada in the 21st century is that we have all the tools we already need. Mm -hmm. We have all the cultural approval we could ever desire if we desired such a thing. And that cultural approval comes from the fact that nobody cares what we're doing. (laughs) It's not divisive like south of the border. We are very wide open to kind of do whatever we want. So let's start doing this. And if we totally flub it up and if we completely make the mistakes, as Wendy, as you pointed out, as I will continue to do, the good news is no one in Canada is watching. No one will care. All we can (laughs) really do right now is pleasantly surprise them. Unfortunately, (laughs) there are some who are trying to chase that that powerful influence and like, oh, can't you see how that's gone awry? Yeah, We'd, we'd have. Yeah, we don't need it. Like, it's never been the part of the Canadian story. It really hasn't. Unless, of course. And this is where Melvina becomes this, um, if I can use this, you, you almost become the prototype or the, or the face of who I think is the most valuable Christians in Canada right now because mm-hmm. there's power in being overlooked. And this is what I wrap up the book with. There's power in this. There's yes. spiritual truth. There is a forced rejection of carnal power. And so what is, and I, this is not a silver linings kind of analogy, but Melvina's experience is unique and powerful. It, you have found Christ in a historically disenfranchised posture within your larger culture and community. That is not something I have any access to. I am free. In fact, I'm actually rewarded every time I build a soapbox. That's not even something I have to pause to think about. My only question is, where do I get the wood and how many nails do I have? Mm. And so that has given me profound blind spots. That history is, because it's what I love so much, that's been a great teacher that's given me a wisdom from experiences that did not happen to me. And I think that's the great gift of history. Uh, and then I need to carry that with one hand because that that is something I can do. But more importantly for the present day is with my other hand is to listen to Melvina, is to listen to Dr. Terry LeBlanc, is to listen to my numerous Indigenous brothers and sisters, not just about your experiences, but I need you to teach me the way of our Lord um, mm. because I have lost a plot and I inherited a plot that was already lost. And in you, I hear and see something I haven't experienced and I'm hungry for. So that's that sort of tension going forward that I'm very, very excited to be on this journey. And I give all thanks to God that this is the crazy adventure of of this life. Boom, mic drop. (laughs) I think we could end it there. (laughs) Well, um, we just want to thank you for for joining Journey with Care. Thank you. For coming on and just, you know, sitting around the table with us and having this conversation. Both of us really enjoyed your book. Um, Where can our listeners find your book? Oh, great. Okay. So Amazon, (laughs) the (laughs) the great, the great necessary evil of this age. You can find it on Amazon. Overlooked. uh, I usually put overlooked book, James Robertson, which goes back to the dinghy thing. There will be a book on Amazon, all overlooked, and it has a topless gentleman on the cover. That is not me. It's 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 the one below it. It's the white one. Yes, it's it's the white one. Yeah. Um, and more importantly, probably uh, for anybody, because it's got a bunch of other stuff that's going on and there's a website, canadaoverlooked.ca. So you can buy the book there just directly and, and it, it, it goes to where it needs to go. But there's information about the audiobook coming up, the tour coming out. I, we put some fun videos up there. We're just trying to keep that page populated as it goes. So yeah, I'd say fun. go to canadaoverlooked.ca and then unlike Amazon, they should be able to sign a copy for you. So I can, I'm happy Excellent. to do that. Well, there you have it, audience. Uh, If you don't have the book on your shelf yet, uh, we will put this link into the show notes and we want to invite you to read about our history, come up with those questions and interact with our history here in the, the country we know as Canada. 
Thank you so much, uh, James, for continuing this conversation. I hope we can continue to have this dialogue as we learn more and more about our roots. Oh, nothing would please me more. Thank you to both of you. Thanks for listening to the Journey with Care podcast, where paths connect over real life stories and honest conversations. We hope you continue to join us on this journey of faith, reconciliation, and loving our neighbor. Be sure to like, follow, and share. Special thanks to host Melvina Gabosh, ARC podcast engineer Johan Heinrichs, and donors who help make this show possible. Journey with Care is an initiative of Care Impact, a Canadian charity dedicated to connecting and equipping the whole church across Canada to effectively journey in community with children and families in hard places. Learn how Care Impact is transforming the way churches engage with child welfare with our Care Portal technology and academy training. To support this podcast or to learn more about us, go to careimpact.ca or click the link in the show notes. We're so glad you are part of this journey with us as we journey with care, even in the messy. Until next time.